So early this morning, I was standing out on the sidewalk greeting folks in the first service. It's a, something I enjoy doing, get to know people. I don't get to meet many people in this setting. But um, I just had the occasion, I was just looking around, and I was looking at all of our volunteers kind of getting in position on campus. And uh, it was our guest services team in the green shirts. They were all getting into place to be able to serve you and other guests to our church and make sure you have all that you need. I was looking at our safety services team going through their pre-service protocols, making sure that we're providing the safest environment that we can for everyone who participates on our campus. I had stopped in to visit with our hospitality team. They were making up lots of coffee. You guys drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> And then I saw all these volunteers in their red Kids Creek shirt coming in to serve our children. And, and then I'd been in here in the auditorium working with our worship team to get ready for the service. And uh, I was just so grateful for all the men and the women and teenagers who serve as volunteers around our church and help make each Sunday happen. And uh, I'm really, really grateful. You know, it's interesting. I, from time to time, we get to talk with folks and they're sharing with us about how Sybil Creek has had an impact on their life, how they're grateful for this church. And that's always really nice to hear. We love that encouragement. But I just wish our volunteers could also hear some of the stories that I get to hear because I want them to know that they're making a tremendous difference, having an enormous impact in people's lives by just providing all that it takes to make a church service available on a Sunday morning and the ministries that we offer throughout the week. So let me ask you, if, if you see a volunteer, somebody wearing a red Kids Creek shirt or green uh, guest services team, or you see one of the band members on campus, would you, just, would you just thank them? Thank them for the work that they do, the service they provide. Um, if you want, give them a big hug. They love hugs. And, uh, but... Uh, I was just feeling really, really grateful for all the people that make, make Sibylla Creek happen. So are you guys in a good mood? Oh, yeah. yep. oh you are? Yep. You're off tomorrow. <laughs> Party! Yeah, you guys are in a great mood. So do you want pudding or steak? Steak. 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 Like wholeheartedly steak. First service was like, C could we get both? I don't know, that's after my own heart. Let's eat steak and then have dessert, right? Okay, so, yeah, today, today's kind of meaty. The topic we're going to tackle, it may stretch some of you. Some of you will be hearing some things for the very first time you've never even considered. Some of you will be hearing some things that you've been around church all your life and you've never really tackled this particular topic. And so today, today might stretch all of us. So it's really important to me as, as your pastor that, that we're all getting on the same page when it comes to our discussion about being disciples of Jesus. We've been talking about it the entire year. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And here at Cibolo, which is the part that I kind of want all of us kind of share a language for, is we're talking about it in three dimensions that part of being a disciple is spending time with Jesus, getting to know him, providing him the opportunity to get to know us. This is about faith, and this is about studying the scriptures, and this is about prayer, and this is about Sabbath. Spending time with Jesus is a way of getting to know him. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. 
And then becoming like Jesus. We've spent all summer. We spent the first like five months of the year talking about this. We spent uh, all summer talking about becoming more like Jesus. Becoming familiar with his character traits and his virtues, his attitudes. And asking ourselves, are those kinds of things taking shape in my life as a follower of Jesus? And then uh, next week we're going to begin exploring this topic. And we'll see this through about December. To do what Jesus did. How did Jesus spend his time and his energy, which is ultimately how we spend our life? And ask ourselves, am I spending my time and my energy in the direction of of Jesus as one of his followers? So we've been exploring becoming more like Jesus all summer. We've talked about uh, most of these attributes and, and a few others. And last week I was, I was explaining to you something I think is really important to understand is that the hardest thing for a human being to do is to become more like Jesus. If you think it's easy, if the church has led you to think it's easy, you've been misled. The hardest thing for a human being to do is to become more like Jesus. It's not innate to us. It's not, it doesn't come naturally. And for that reason... It's hard because it's hard to become more like Jesus when everything inside of you is resisting it. In fact, the Bible would describe that part of that resistance is actually an expression of rebellion. Like, I don't want to become like Jesus. I don't want God telling me how to live my life. And so that makes it really hard to become like Jesus. So we have two choices. To become like Jesus, we can either try really hard, we can try to be more loving, and I'll work on being more kind, and I'll try to be more forgiving, but they really hurt me, and I, I hate them, and I'll, I'll, but I'll try. Or, or we could learn to harness the help of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus talks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, who would come to help them. And the Holy Spirit doesn't get talked about enough. We talk a lot about God as our Father. We talk a lot about Jesus as Savior, but we don't talk about the Holy Spirit nearly enough. And yet He's every bit everything that God is. And we don't understand the nature of His work in our life, and therefore we we kind of short circuit the help that He seeks to offer us. So as, as I was telling you last week, the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is to nurture spiritual growth in the journey toward becoming more like Jesus. That was his assigned role, is to help you and to help me as disciples of Jesus to become more like the Jesus that we follow. So we looked at this passage of Scripture last week in John chapter 4. Jesus was saying to his disciples, If you love me, you will obey me. You'll keep my commands. You'll, You'll follow my instructions. And I, Jesus, I will ask the Father in heaven, and he will give you another advocate, another one. Jesus is saying, I was an advocate for you while I'm here on this earth, but I'm going to ask the Father to send another advocate, and his role is to what? To help you and to be with you for as long as this lasts. The Spirit of Truth. So Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit who would, who would serve as a helper. 
He says the world, people without faith in God, they, they can't accept the Spirit because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him. Why? Because He lives with you and He will be in you. So what, what is Jesus introducing His disciples to? He's introducing them to the understanding that God is going to come and live inside of you. And he'll always be with you. It doesn't matter where you go or what you go through. He will be with you. All this I've spoken while I was still with you here on earth. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He's going to do two things according to Jesus in this particular passage. He will teach you all things. All the things that I've been trying to instruct you about. Jesus is saying to his disciples. The Spirit going to help you understand those things. And he will remind you of everything that I've said to you. As you go on the journey of life and you've learned the things. Then at times the Spirit of God. His role will be to remind you about the things that you've learned. And so as 21st century disciples, as we study the Bible, as we listen to messages, as we read books about our faith or listen to podcasts or we have friends in our life who speak into our life, as we learn things, it's the Holy Spirit who's helping open our eyes and our ears to understand the things of faith that doesn't come natural to us as human beings. And then at times the Spirit's his role is to say, Paul. Remember, we're headed this way. We're following Jesus. And so in those moments of temptation, when I want to chase after something else that's contrary to Jesus's way of life for me, in those times of difficulty or disappointment or discouragement, when I'm thinking, I just quit, the Spirit's going to remind me, no, no, it's, it's worth going in this direction. When I'm afraid and I want to worry or panic, Spirit's like, no, remember, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm here to help you follow Jesus. So the two things that we looked at last week is the Spirit teaching us and reminding us about what it is that we're learning regarding our faith. And today, today I, want to, I want to talk about a third one of the ways that the Holy Spirit's at work in our life. You guys game? I'll just give you a heads up, though. This isn't a very popular discussion. In fact, there's some people who'd rather not even talk about the nature of the Holy Spirit in this regard. In fact, for some people, even Christians, the, the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit that we're going to talk about today, some people find it sort of unappealing or uh, off-putting. Like, no, I, I don't even like that part of my faith and people talk about it. But to truly understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we, we have to understand this part of his work. And I think it's really critical to understand what I'm going to talk about today, to understand why God would ordain or arrange for the Spirit to work this way. So we're going to, we're going to take the plane up to about 30,000 feet. I'm going to give you a really big backdrop. You guys good? Yep. All right. So, you know, we're all different. I don't know if you've noticed that about us, but we're all different. Um, we all have different experiences in life. We have different stories. We have, uh, we have different viewpoints. Uh, we have different beliefs. We have different opinions and perspectives. We have different politics. 
We're all different, but could we all agree? Could we all? (laughs) Man, you are eager. Could we all agree with all of our differences? Could we all agree to this? That our nation, the United States of America in 2023, could we all agree that our nation today is very different than our nation when it first began? Yeah. I mean, that's not a stretch. Okay. Um, could, could we all agree that morally our nation today is very different than where we were morally back in 1776? Ethically, ethically, we're different than when we began. Uh, Socially, socially, like the way that people treat one another, talk to one another, respect one another. Just could you say we're very different today than how we might have imagined it being that many years ago? Uh, Culturally, things that defined our nation in the earliest days, the experiences that shaped uh, how we interpret life, uh, they're, they're very different today. So I, I think we can all agree to that. Well, I, it's just kind of my nature. I'm, I'm always interested in why. Not only what the changes have been, but why have we changed so dramatically as a nation? And the truth of the matter is there's like a hundred different explanations. All kinds of cultural and social reasons why our nation is so different. We're going to just look at one. And it could be described as like a philosophical worldview. Like the way that we look at our nation and our lives. Philosophically, our worldview, our view of the world is Changed dramatically shifted since we began as a nation. Well, it's interesting, this philosophical worldview, it has a name. The name's not original to me. In fact, this word or these words were, crea- uh, were identified back in the 1930s. A professor identified, well, this might be an explanation for a kind of a philosophical worldview shift. But it wasn't just happening. It didn't begin in 1930. It had actually been decades in the making. The seeds had been planted decades earlier. They were starting to sprout. And and in the 1930s, we're starting to look around and go, oh, wait a second. Things have changed. And here we are in 2023. And we're looking at a full-blown harvest of a dramatic shift in how our nation primarily views life. It's called secular humanism. It's it's humanism at its core. Now, we're not here for a master's class in humanism. We're going to keep it real simple. Basically, secular humanism says this. Human beings are at the center of the universe. They are the ultimate or highest creature. They have the capacity and the capability to solve and define and provide for themselves. In fact, uh, in secular humanism, 
God is completely rejected. Uh, Secular humanism would define God as some kind of a social construct that was created in order for weak people to have some sort of um, outside force for them to do the right things. It has secular humanism has no place for the supernatural, the spiritual, the eternal. It has no place for God, Jesus, Bible. And those are declared statements of humanistic societies that propagate this whole idea, this this worldview. You with me so far? Okay, so secular humanism says we as human beings, we are so intelligent, we are so capable, we have such powers of reason and ration, rationale that we can, we can ultimately determine what's best for human beings. And so what happens then is secular humanism says human beings alone are the arbitrators of what's true or untrue. Not some outside force, not some sort of absolute of any kind. No, no. We as human beings, we will decide, we will establish and identify what's really true and what's untrue. We define that, human beings. Um, secular humanism says we, we will decide what's right and what's wrong. We will decide what's just and what's unjust. As humans, secular humanism, humans will, try, will decide and become the arbitrators of this is what's good and this is what's bad. There's just one big problem. And that is verifiable truth about human beings. This isn't philosophy. This isn't theology. This, this is verifiable fact. You ready? Ready? Just one big problem. Um, human beings are finite. They, they only live within a very small segment of time. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a big celebration if they make it to 100 85 years is, is about the average. They just live in this very small section of time. And all they can know about the past is whatever they've been told, whatever they've read. They haven't read everything and they haven't been told everything. But, but they have an understanding of only what is in the past. And here's the finite nature of human beings is they have absolutely no promise, no confidence, no ability to project the future. They can't. We literally do not know for sure what's going to happen one minute from now. Why? Because as human beings, we're finite. The second part of something that's true about human beings is that they're fallible. We're, we're fallible. We, we make mistakes. What's the common saying? Well, everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes we don't add up all the numbers correctly. Sometimes we don't do all of the experiments to verify the science. Sometimes we don't get it right. It's the nature of human beings. We're fallible. Third, it's the nature of human beings. We're fragile. In other words, we break. If pushed to certain limits, physically, we can break. But we're also fragile emotionally. 
We're fragile relationally. We're fragile um, mentally. We, we can come to a place where we are not capable anymore and we break and we fold. It's one of the reasons why human beings are so soft. It's, it's not that there aren't human beings who are pursuing really hard things, but in, in general, we, we prefer comfort. We prefer convenience. You ready? We prefer popularity. We like to think that we're a part of the way everybody else lives and thinks and behaves. We don't like to be singled out. Some people do. We don't prefer to swim upstream. We'd rather go with the flow. It's the nature of human beings. And then there's another dimension of human beings. And this may sound theological, but it's actually verifiable, okay? Uh, but I couldn't find another word that began with F for it. Um, it it's, we're selfish. If push comes to shove, we think of ourselves. We look out for number one. We look out for one, number one financially. Emotionally, relationally, personally. This, this is the truth about human beings. And yet it's these human beings, us, who are finite and fallible, fragile and selfish, who are then in secular humanism establishing ourselves to be the arbitrators of what's true and untrue. But we're finite and fallible. We're setting ourselves up as the judge and the jury for what's right and wrong, good and bad, just and unjust. And that's, that creates a problem because our tendency as human beings is to move toward, I want a comfortable truth. I want a convenient justice. I, I, I want a morality and an ethic that seems to be the most popular with everybody else. I want to I go with the flow. That's the danger of human beings establishing themselves at the center of the universe. Did you follow that? Here, here's the truth about us as human beings. We, we don't like to be told what to do. Did any of you ever have to teach your children about not liking being told what to do? No, it, it's part of human nature. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told what not to do. We don't like to be told um, how to live or how not to live. And the fact of the matter is we don't like anybody or anything telling us that what we choose to do is, is bad. We, we don't like that. Or is that just me? Is this true? Okay, so... Here, here's the essence of, of humanistic theology or worldview. Truth is relative then. If we decide truth as human beings, what we've decided is good and best is that, well, you just live your truth. You just do what you think is good and right, just and unjust. And, and I may make a different choice. Uh, truth is relative and choice is supreme. I get to choose what's best for me. It may be different than how you choose, but choice is supreme. And then actions are personal, meaning my truth, my choice, my way, it has no bearing on you. 
A lot of, lot of behaviors are justified this way. Well, nobody, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just doing what I think is for me. This, this isn't the voice of freedom. It's the voice of secular humanism resonant in the human heart. Now, some people, they, they, they look at where we are today as a nation versus where we've been, and they go, thank God we're not like that anymore. And this person, they sees the change, the evolution, they see that as progress. They are referred to as progressives. Now, before you get squeamish on me, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about a progressive worldview that says, no, moving away from the past and that tradition and all those boundaries and restrictions, moving away from that talk about God and Jesus and right and wrong, moving away from that to a greater freedom, that's progress. Well, so it's interesting how secular humanism describes us as human beings versus how God describes us as human beings. Now, secular humanism will say, human beings are amazing. They're, they're, they're just incredible. They, they're so capable. They're so competent. And guess what? A biblical worldview, God would say, human beings are amazing. They're so capable and they're so competent. But there's some other things that you should probably know about human beings. And God in his word tells us. So it's interesting in the Old Testament. Um, there's this era in Israel's history. It's about 450 to 500 years long. That's a long time, right? That's longer we've been around as a nation. A lot of people lived and died in 500 years. And basically this period of history, largely recorded and spoken about in like the book of Judges, um, it was a time of complete moral and ethical chaos. Because the nation of Israel is saying, we, we don't want God's rules, this law, these Ten Commandments. They're so burdensome. We, wanna just, we just want to do like the other nations. They like say that. That's a quote. Can we be like the other nations? Can we be popular like everybody else? Just do what they do? And so it's interesting in the book of Judges twice, the author writes these words. He says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Now, this isn't just about somebody sitting on a throne. The nature or the, the responsibility of the king of Israel as given, it to, as given to them by God, the king was responsible for directing the nation to God and honoring his commandments. But there was no king to have that kind of influence. There was no king in Israel. And so here's what happened over 450 years. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? I mean, that was written a long time ago. But can you find a more fitting commentary of where we find ourselves as a nation right now? Just, just do what's right in your own eyes. So humanism describes 
human beings one way, God describes human beings another way, a different way, a fuller way. And, and so here, here's, here's just some. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet, he asks this question. He says this, the heart, the, the kind of the grand central station in human beings, the heart is more deceitful than anything out there. It'll lie to your face. The heart is more deceitful. It's desperately sick. Other translations, it's desperately wicked. The heart is corrupt. The heart of human beings is corrupted by sin. And, and Jeremiah says, who can understand it? I mean, the heart's crazy place. It'll tell you things that you, like, what? Who can understand the heart, Jeremiah asked. So it's interesting. The uh, book of Proverbs says, um, the fear of the Lord, a deep and respound, re a deep and profound respect for God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of being wise. I mean, you want to, want to be wise? It starts with a profound respect for God. And the knowledge of the Holy One, that's, that's understanding. But here's what we read in the scriptures. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Wait a second. God is at the beginning of real knowledge, truth, and understanding. But the foolish person says, ah, there's no God. I don't need to worry about him. All that talk about afterlife, that's just scare tactics. Those who trust in themselves, hmm, they're fools, God says. But those who walk in wisdom, which begins where? With the fear of the Lord, they are kept safe. The way of fools, it, it seems right to them. Uh, Secular humanism, we can figure out truth and untruth, right and wrong, just and just, good and unjust, good and bad, and, and we'll decide what, what's permissible, because that seems right. But the wise, they, they listen to what God has to say. There's a way which seems right to a person, but the end is, it's, is death. You see, we don't always do all the math. We don't understand all of the truth. Now, here's two passages of scripture. These are so profound. And their application to the current situation in which we live. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth. We, we don't want to hear about that kind of stuff. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. But I, I got to stamp that down. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is his power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made. So that human beings were, were without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their reasonings, like their thoughts and rationale. And their senseless hearts were, what? Darkened. Claiming to be wise. We're so smart. We're so intelligent. Look at our degrees. Look at our research. Look at what we've understood. We're, we're claiming to be wise. They, they actually became fools. 
blinded by their new definition of truth. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of a corruptible mankind, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. They settled to worship for things that they could make. And this is one of the most frightening statements in Scripture. Therefore, God gave them up. Okay, have at it. Have your way. He gave them up to a vile impurity in their lust of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. This line right here. They exchanged the truth of God for lies. I'm either going to do a series of messages or I'm going to write a book on that line right there. Because this, this is what's happening in our world. They exchanged the truth of God for lies. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here it is again, God gave them up. Just turn them over to their own ways. To a depraved mind. To do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding untrustworthy, unfeeling, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do those things, but they approve and applaud and affirm those who practice them. This is what God has to say about the heart and the mind of a human being who is establishing itself as the arbitrators of all that's true and untrue, just and unjust, right and wrong, good and bad. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, I say this and I affirm in the Lord that that you as Christians, you should no longer walk as Gentiles. He's using Gentiles to describe people who've pushed God out. They walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Meaning, we'll, we'll, we'll do the wildest things because we can make money from it. But, but Paul says to the Christian, you, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to that old way of living, that old thinking In reference to your former way of life, you are to rid yourselves of the old self, which is corrupted, and that you should be renewed in the spirit of your mind and how you think and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. You say, "Uh, Paul, didn't, weren't we going to talk about the Holy Spirit today? Uh Uh-huh. But I had to get us here to understand what it is that the Holy Spirit was given to us to do. Why it's so important. The deception and rebellion that's resident in the human soul requires divine help for anybody hoping to become more like Jesus. 
It is not innate to us to become more like Jesus. Why? Because our hearts are rebellious. Our minds are darkened. Our sin, our, our heart is hardened. Enter the Holy Spirit. Who was given to us for this very reason. Jesus, Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 16. I'm going to go, Jesus, I'm going to go to him who sent me, the Father. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I'm leaving. For if I do not leave, then the helper, the Spirit of God, he will not come to you. But I'll send him to you when I leave. And when, when he, when he comes, here's what he will do. He will convict people regarding sin and, and righteousness and, and judgment. So last week we looked at the fact that the Spirit, one of the things he does is teaches us. Another thing he does is he reminds us of the things that we've learned. The third way, and there's others, but we're just talking about these three right now. The third way in which the Spirit of God is at work in the heart of a Christian in the journey of following Jesus is in the work of conviction. He convicts us. And you go, what does that mean? Well, that's a great question. Not to mention that the word conviction is complicated because we can use it like at least three different ways. Sometimes we use conviction to, to describe somebody who's been found guilty and sentenced for a criminal offense. He has a criminal conviction on his record. That's one of the ways the word is used, but that's not the way that it's used to describe the spirit. The second way that we use the word conviction is strong, unwavering belief of conscience. She held fast to her convictions on the matter. That's not the way that we're referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. A third way is that conviction can mean a feeling or sense of doing or having done wrong. I've been feeling a deep sense of conviction about what I did. That's the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit. So, there's all sorts of words that I could use to describe, like what conviction feels like. We could say the word guilt. Sometimes it feels like the feeling of guilt. I feel guilty for what I just did, or what I said, or what I'm doing. Uh, sometimes it can feel like shame. We feel ashamed for what we did. Sometimes it can be like remorse, like, oh, I can't believe I did that again. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it can be disappointment. Ah, oh, so disappointed in myself. The, the, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It can feel at times like grief. But really, the very best description of what it means to be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is essentially a disgust. For sin. I just. I hate that I do this. In relationship to the holy God. Who's made me one of his children. I don't want to be a part of this. That's the nature of what conviction. Feels like. So, so what we see is the Holy Spirit. Convicts us. 
of whatever is inconsistent or incompatible with the way of Jesus. So we say we're disciples, we're followers of Christ, Christ is going that way. We go this way until temptation or disappointment or fear. And we start doing something else in the spirit of God at times. He, it's like he puts his arms around us and he causes us to feel something about the direction that we're headed and we use words like oh, guilt or shame or remorse. But really, at the end of the day, what it is is help. Because of our darkened hearts, because of the sin in our life and the impact it's had on the way that we think, this is God coming alongside and helping us to decide to, or to choose to move back in the direction that God would have us to live our life. Conviction is a means by which the Holy Spirit guides us into a deeper, fuller obedience in following Jesus. It's, it's conviction that leads us to things like confession. And I'm not describing confession as like to go to a church and, you know, have a time with somebody. I'm talking about like us. Confession basically means to agree I come to a place through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, yes, I, I agree that, that what I did, that's sinful. That is not the way you would have me to live. And confession should lead to repentance, a change of mind and heart about, I'll stop. I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. That's the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to conviction. So there's a very interesting verse in the, the, in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So again, he's working from an understanding that God and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he says, don't grieve him. This is the idea of like the Holy Spirit going, oh, Paul. Don't you see how that's so incompatible with your profession to follow Jesus? I'm not going that way. So, so I got to thinking. This is a thought. The emotions that we feel, that thing inside of us that seems to be speaking to us about our sin, that emotions we feel when we realize the guilt of our sin just might be the grief of the Holy Spirit reverberating within our soul. Think about that. And when I make the choice to do that which is contrary to the way of Christ in my life and I feel something, perhaps that's the Spirit of God going, oh, this is not the way. And if we could learn to listen to that, if we could learn to hear that and feel that and sense it and know its place in our life and recognize it as help from God. Does that make sense? Yes. A lot to think about. So I have three more minutes. Well, I don't really, but... All right, there's something really important to me. I don't want you leaving here going, ah, yeah, it sounds like all the Christianity I've ever known. Just live in guilt, live in shame, live in remorse. Oh, yeah, love being a Christian. So fun. <laughs> I, I, I don't want that for you because that's not what God wants for you. 
I've come that you might have life, that you might have it abundantly, that you might know joy and peace and hope. So I, I just, I just want to make sure that we keep this in perspective. We don't live in the disappointment of our guilt or shame and thinking that's just the nature of the Holy Spirit and he's always disappointed with me. I, here's what I want you to hear. Conviction is not condemnation. Conviction is not condemnation. The Bible tells us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. When you've placed your faith in Jesus, his work on the cross, his resurrection, you've come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. There's no more condemnation ever. You're not at risk. That's why Paul, I love this passage, having been justified by faith, Having been made right with God by faith, we have what? Peace with God. At one time, we were his enemies. A Bible word, enmity existed between us. But now in Christ, we, we have peace. He's our father in heaven. We're his sons and his daughters. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this. I love this What? In this grace in which we now stand. You know what that means? That means for a Christian, we stand our entire life. We're insulated and enveloped in God's grace. There's no risk of condemnation. We only know grace from the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Grace is not permission to sin. Like, oh, I have grace. I can do as I please. No, that's not what grace is for. Grace is protection when we sin. Although we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he calls us to follow hard after Jesus Christ in obedience, we live in this grace that protects us from any condemnation for that guilt that we feel for what we've done wrong. But the convicting work of the Holy Spirit isn't about condemnation. It's about, oh, Paul, come on. There's so, so much better waiting for you in obedience. That joy, that peace, that hope that I want for you, it's found here in following Jesus. A Christian rest in the unending grace and forgiveness secured for them through their faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Conviction is then... Simply a means by which God leads us toward the better life found in following Jesus. You know what that means? That means he loves you. He loves you and he knows how hard it is for the human heart to follow after Jesus. So he said, I tell you what, I'll give you some help. I'll come and live in you. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Do you know what he does? He helps he helps you. And if you'll listen, he'll teach you God's truth. He'll remind you when the moment re requires for you to be, to call back to memory what, oh, that's right, that's right, that's what I'm trying to do. And at times, at times, he'll put the squeeze on and it's like, oh, why? Because he loves you. And he wants to help you to find the life that's waiting for you in following Jesus. Does that make sense? You guys are awesome. Let me ask you to stand together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Thank you for your outrageous love. 
Thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you place in us to help us with this journey of becoming more like Jesus. Thank you. Father, give us the heart that's sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit as he seeks to teach and remind and convict us as we make progress toward what it is to be like the Savior who died for us and gave us eternal life. Do this work in our heart, I pray and ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody, have a great week.